Welcome back to Growing With My Fellow Growers, a live podcast on YouTube presented by the Cheap Home Grow Podcast Network. Thank you to Shane of the Cheap Home Grow. This is Jack filling in as the host once again. I've got an awesome panel with me tonight. Uh, this is Sunday if you're listening live. If not, uh, thank you for joining us. We want to remind you to click on that live chat if you're here with us. I'm seeing the YouTube up on my end right now. I'm going to mute it so I don't get any feedback. And uh, go say hi to the good people in the chat. But before I do that, I want to pass it over to our IPM specialist, Matthew. Go ahead and introduce yourself. Yes, hello everyone. For those who don't know, I'm Matthew Gates. I'm an integrated pest management specialist and you can find me on Instagram at SyncAngel, also on YouTube itself with the same account that I'm commenting on in the chat, Xenthanol. And um, I'm excited for an upcoming video. I talked about it last time about insect digestion. Still not out, still not out, but you can find an excerpt on my Instagram channel where we talk about uh, sugar digestion and how that's actually a thing and anyone who's telling you otherwise is not correct. So I know that's contentious for some people, but stay tuned. Starting off the show with a little bit of controversy. Gotta love it. I'm going to let the American one into the room. I just saw that he's trying to join, but as I do that, I'm going to pass it over to Spartan Grown. Hello everybody. I'm Spartan Grown. You can, it's all one word on Instagram. I say that now because people start trying to copy my account. So Spartan Grown, all one word. I saw that. <laughs> But we got that taken care of, and uh, or you can find me on uh, YouTube right here on the Cheap Home Grow channel, or at the Michigan Grows Grow Show, or at the Grandmaster Level Show. Good stuff. Thanks again for joining us this week. We always appreciate you coming on. And next up, we have Brandon Rust. Just about to eat some candy, and it didn't taste very good. Um, what's going on, everybody? Uh, if you're not already familiar. Um, it's always good to be here. I like doing the, the shows every uh, Sunday. It's kind of like my church, you know. Um, uh, it actually makes me a better grower. Uh, helps me, uh, you know, talk about what I've learned and that replication uh, helps me retain a lot of knowledge. Uh, so I'm really happy to be here. Uh, if you want to find me on social media, you can find me at Rust Brandon, R-U-S-T-B-R-A-N-D-O-N on IG and Bokashi Earthworks. Um, you can see all my work there. Yeah, give him a give him my uh, follow because he recently had some trouble with Instagram. So definitely do that. Still having a lot of trouble with Instagram. Half of my posts I have to contest, and then only half the ones that I contest go back up, even if they're not. You know, I have no sales and stuff like that on there, but uh, it's definitely censorship. A lot of censorship. Yeah. So Rust Brandon on IG. Sorry to hear about that, and. Uh... Sorry to hear about Spartan Growing as well, having people try and copy your account. But I think the cream rises to the top, and ultimately uh, people will find your stuff, the people that are looking for it, I would hope. And um, you guys put out great content, and it gains the followings back fairly quickly, and you've got shows like this and other third-party things that can line people back up with uh, where to find you. So with that being said, I want to go ahead and pass it over to Dr. MJ. Hey guys, yeah, Dr. MJ Coco from CocoForCannabis.com. I have dealt with some of those copycat issues. We actually had somebody take our our advertisements for the Plant Training Grow Challenge and like sloppily Photoshop them and reuse them for their own event. Um, wow. So yeah, that kind of that kind of sucks. Um, but anyway, speaking of the Plant Training Grow Challenge, there's still time to time to uh, get in on that. We're flipping our plants on October 1st. If you got plants that you could flip anywhere close to October 1st, join us in that. Our first giveaway is on Tuesday. 
I'm giving away a, a Mars grow kit with a TS 1000 or TS 1000. Yeah. 1000 and a two by two grow tent and fan and all that. So come by, check out Cocoa for Cannabis Grow Challenge. And uh, yeah, I'm excited for the show. I, I'm also excited for that. I think it's going to be really cool to see all the different techniques and how it works out for everybody. And uh, make sure to leave a thumbs up because everybody likes free stuff. And Dr. MJ has given away some good free stuff. It's not like low quality. So uh, as a cheap home grow, person i'm sure everybody loves that good value uh free quality things is always an awesome thing to get so shout out to uh the american one you're the final one i think noah's going to be joining us about 15 minutes late but the last one here uh but certainly not least go ahead and introduce yourself thanks jack uh good to see the panel and everyone in chat um i'm the american one on youtube and the american one underscore with underscore akeens on ig most of you know me already and uh, I'm happy to be here. We are happy to have you. I want to shout out uh, GR420 Community Videos, listening in from the UK. Always awesome to see some of the international audience. But with uh, that said, we are going to get into the episode. A few weeks back, our very own Russ Brandon mentioned maybe we could go into some post-processing. And I know we've talked about that a little bit in the past, um, whether we're talking about drying, curing, trim. But I was thinking more so on like the hash-making side of concentrates, whether it's a BHO, uh, ice water hash, dry sift, um, edibles, there's so many different things, uh, Rick Simpson oil or full spectrum oil or you know whatever you want to call it, cannabis oil. There's a lot of different things and I know a few different members of the panel are uh, already partaking in that type of thing. Kyle Breeder is about to join us. So I'm going to pass it over to uh, Brandon first because he was the one who brought up the topic a few weeks ago. And then once uh, he talks on that for a second, we'll introduce Kyle. Yeah, first of all, let me say uh, if you can have vertical integration and you can do a uh, flower to uh, like hash rosin, um, it's a really, really profitable business uh, model because you basically go from harvesting, you freeze the material, you don't have to pay people to trim, you don't have to store it. All that uh, whole process is completely eliminated in that aspect. And a lot of times uh, the people who are doing this, uh, uh, cultivating for uh, rosin, they uh, they don't go let the plants go full term because they want that lighter color ash. And so they, they, they let the trichomes get milky, but they don't let them amber. So they're actually able to cut off, uh, you know, a couple of days each harvest off of flower time too. So Weeks in some cases. Uh, but I wanted to go ahead and give Kyle a, a chance because uh, I see that he's officially in here now and we got his audio and everything set up. So Kyle, go ahead and introduce yourself. Hey, sorry I'm late. I was uh, I was watering the girls. Um, yeah, Kyle, uh, if anybody's looking for good feminized seeds, uh, it's kind of what I specialize in. You can go to the website peabreeding.com or if you look at any of the material that I post on any of my social media platforms at Predicated Breeding. And uh, yeah, I'm happy to be here, Jack. Thanks for hosting. Thanks for the panel being here. I'm excited to see what we have to speak about tonight. So we were talking a little bit about post-processing and uh, Brandon was getting into some of the uh, benefits of going straight into like a whole plant fresh frozen where you're not going to have to pay a trimmer. You can knock a few days or even weeks off of harvest um, to keep that color lighter. In the cases that that doesn't happen, say somebody um, has stuff that was dried and cured and the resin got a little bit more amber or they just harvested later and uh, got a more like potent buzz, people are doing what's called CRC or color remediation columns where they make it a lighter color, which I personally think like I like really dark hash, like temple walls, which are like brown to black sometimes and are fantastic smoke and really clean. But uh, I think people are, the market kind of dictates what people end up producing and uh, light color. If you can harvest earlier and 
you know, still get a good price point. People are going to go and do that. But I know Spartan Grown has a different approach instead of, uh, you know, another way to avoid trimming with like the LARF small bud and trim is to go about making cannabis oil. So Spartan, could you talk us through a little bit of your technique and uh, why you prefer? I actually took some cannabis oil right before the show, a big old dose. So <laughs> not to go, I'm a little mellow today, but uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, um, what my process, I just call it full spectrum oil. And um, what makes it, what stands apart? Why is it different than RSO? It's, it's an alcohol extraction. Um, RSO was originally was used, the solvent was naphtha. He's now using alcohol, but what makes my process different than what he suggests is I just try to keep everything, I'm trying to get a full spectrum oil. So what I mean by that is capture as much of the um, plant botanicals as possible. So what I do differently is I try to keep everything as cold as possible because the higher the temperature, the more volatile, the, or the more of the lower volatile gases and terpenes and everything. Uh, esters, they all will flash off at different temperatures. So if you keep it super low, hopefully you're preserving all those. So like the alcohol is froze, kept in the freezer. The product, you know, after I decarb the product, it goes in the freezer before and gets frozen, make sure it's like 24 hours before I add the alcohol. I want it to be super cold. What that's doing too is it's locking in the chlorophyll. It's, it's keeping the chlorophyll from being leached into the uh, alcohol. So um, then, you, then you go ahead and, and combine them together, um, filter that out afterwards. I'm just kind of speeding up because it is kind of a long process. There's a lot of little things in between, but you get the gist of it. And then uh, I put it in the machine called uh, the ETO, E-T-O-H, the ETO by Extract Craft. And it's basically a closed loop. Um, uh, it boils off the alcohol under vacuum. Why that's a good thing is that under vacuum, alcohol will boil off at lower, even lower temperatures. So I'm just, you know, in this whole process, and I'm reclaiming my alcohol, which is amazing for the budget. <laughs> it's like 100 degrees, which I thought it would be like, when you say lower temperatures, I thought it might be a few degrees, but it's like 100 degrees Fahrenheit or something is at least what the source runs at. I'm not sure what the Ito runs at but it's a lot lower than I would have thought. And it depends on your altitude or whatever, but they set it to your altitude. And it, I was actually surprised how low of a temperature that it was able to operate at effectively. The nice, the nice thing on the ETO machine that has, it doesn't tell you what the temperature is, but you can, you know, I don't know if you could shoot, you probably couldn't shoot through the glass and get an accurate reading though. But um, you could shoot the side of the uh, vessel and you could probably get a close approximation of the temperature, but it has a dial. And you can turn up and down the temperature so you could even back it down or, or raise it up you know you, i use that to um determine how much of the alcohol is boiled off you know consistency kind of a thing the higher the temperature the more the alcohol yeah definitely i'm a big fan i'm actually going to order the smaller unit i know uh everybody's like oh i wish i'd get the bigger unit but i have such a small grow operation that it just makes sense to get the smallest one no and, uh, it doesn't it doesn't make sense you, you don't think so it's no, so much cheaper no, it's not worth it. I would, I would rather not have it than pay that. And I would rather not have it and save up for the big one. I ended but, up giving mine away, dude. I didn't even charge for it. That's a lucky person, I guess, whoever got it. But I think it, you don't even really need one. I guess you could not reclaim it. But I definitely am uh, enticed by the opportunity of reclaiming whatever solvent is used and uh, having that as an opportunity to like clean up stuff as well. And I want to say Rick used naphtha. He was in Canada. And naphtha in Canada is like 99.9%, .9 very, very, very pure. 
And in the United States, naphtha is almost always extremely dirty. So it's not a great solvent to use. So he recommends even like rubbing alcohol like 99.9 over naphtha, which I personally don't prefer. I think um, like drinkable ethanol or uh, like, you know, alcohol, even if it's like 190 proof, yeah, there's a little bit more water in there. Yeah. So it takes some more time to boil off, but. Uh, no, 190 is fine. Just the yeah. 151 is the one you want to avoid. But yeah, the 190 would be fine or 200. I mean, 200 is a waste of money because as soon as you pop the cap, it turns to 190 basically as you pour it out. But um, what was I going to say? There's something you, I forgot what I was saying. We were just talking about the solvents and uh, RSO being different than like a uh, full spectrum oil because the solvent used, I guess. And uh, the extra craft Ito versus the source. I was thinking about getting the source, yeah, which is a smaller unit. Yeah, there was something else I was trying. I can't remember what it was. But yeah, for sure, man. I, I mean, I used the source for a lot and it was it'll work and, it, and it'll do what it's supposed to do, but it's just so many flaws and things that you wish were different were addressed in the new one. And um, yeah, I, I, w- I would never take that step back. Like literally I can just let your stuff pile up and you can do in, in one day, what would take you a month with a small one. What is the price difference between the source and the Ito? Do you know? Oh, it's huge. I'm sure. I, I just, what I did was I just took a tax return. When I got my tax returns back, I, I bought it with about the Ito. That's how I got it. That's a good way of going about it. I thought about doing that with the rosin press earlier this year. Didn't end up doing it, but. Well, that was me. I was like, going to either do a rosin press or do the Ito, but either one was going to give me an extraction. I just went the, the route of like the medical route kind of a thing. Although I'm sure there's medical benefits of rosin. I just think there's more of, of the uh, FSO. Nice. I definitely, um, I probably should have just bought that up front. I ended up investing in Tesla stock that ended up doubling. So maybe I should just pull that out and buy myself it. But I got a little Polestar. Polestar? Yeah. That's another electric car group. Anyways, just saying. Okay. There's another with with the internet Starlink they got going up, man, that's going to be worth so much money. If you, if you're willing to just sit on it like a retirement plan, that thing will pay for your retirement. My plan is to sit on it. It's uh, already doubled in uh, less than a year, so that's better than like the S&P 500. And I don't know. To get off the stock subject and back onto the post-processing subject, Doc, uh, I think I remember you talking about making cookies or edibles with some of your um, trim and things like that. So could you give us a little bit of uh, insight yeah. into some of the things that you make with your cannabis products post-harvest? I t- well, I typically use primarily the flour. Um, I mean, that, that's what I'm sort of in it for. So I don't do anything with my flour besides sort of vape it and smoke it. Um, with all the trim and, yeah, I mean, sometimes some of the flour that I'm less interested in, I usually make butter um, and then make butter into cookies. Um, I like cookies because you can bake cookies at a much lower temperature than you can bake most other things. Um, so yeah, I go through a, a decarb um about an hour in the oven um break everything up and then i use a crock pot and i do a really long steep in the crock pot at at sort of the low simmer temperature um often at least eight hours sometimes 12 um and then strain out the butter and and use that to to bake my uh coconut chocolate chip cannabis cookies now i think um do you believe that maybe the the way that you make your edibles would uh lead to why they're so sedating with that long eight hour process with that heat that's um, a, that's really the purpose of the the longer um sort of steep um the main 
it's family members who consume most of my cookies and um, they use them as sort of a, a sleep aid, a late night kind of a thing. So they're interested in that sort of um, heavy kind of sleepy effect. And I definitely try to make the butter strong and sort of sleepy for that. So yeah, that accounts for part of the reason why I do a longer steep. Mission accomplished in that case. I know uh, the American one, our other panel member over there, says uh, a cookie a day will keep the doctor away, and he's going to live to 137 years old. I think that's his <laughs> no, uh, at least. 168. I have seen the future. Oh, there we go. But, but um, you know, to be honest, I'm interested in this conversation. I've never really done I have bags. I have um, four, I think, um, you know, brown paper bags with trim right now that um, is pretty much probably only good for butter at this point. But like I, I always end up with a, a glut on that side. I don't myself use very much. I have a freezer full of the butter too. Um, so that's why I haven't sort of processed any of the other stuff. So I'm always kind of looking for other ideas, but man, I don't have a problem getting high. So like the, the idea of doing a lot of extra work or investing in significant other kinds of technology although you know i probably will at some point it, it just seems like the thing i feel the peer pressure from all you guys but i've been pretty happy with just using flour that's a uh, hey flour works extremely well uh, the uh boom farms on talking shit with eagle last night was like i was making hash with my trim for so long and then somebody said hey you can just make hash with flour and he's like so i don't have to trim it and started making hash like that so shout out to boom but in the uh, chat shredder 0911 asks something about um they were questioning the recycling of ethanol they heard that on the adam dunn show they said that you should only use it a few times that's something i've actually not heard before i believe that that was said on that show and they asked spartan grown it says something to do with polarity or solubility i think how many times do you reuse your alcohol spartan and i know that you lose like 10 percent per run so do you just go until it's yeah, gone? That's yeah that's what i'm saying i was trying to express it in chat was so when I get my reclaim, it's usually a half, the, the most that it'll hold is a half gallon, um, the reclaim jar that I use. So um, when I get my reclaim and I'm emptying it, I empty it back into the gallon jug. And then I have a new jug of ethanol that I top it off with. So I always have that gallon that I put back in the freezer. My other ethanol is just stored outside of the freezer okay. or not, grain alcohol. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I had uh, never really heard any issues with reusing it, and I know a lot of people reuse it from their source or Ito um, and have pretty good success. Kyle, I know that you've been quiet over there. What do you like to do with some of your uh, material post-processing other than just like smoking or vaping flour? Well, uh, as you guys know, I mean, I'm pretty uh, temperamental when it comes to strains and weed nowadays for some reason. I don't quite know why. And and it, it actually kind of bothers me because like I just miss uh just getting wicked high as shit and like going fishing and like doing all these things that I used to do but uh so if I do dabble in that area I definitely enjoy uh brownies you know so I'll basically uh melt a bunch of butter I did make some uh basically just butter man butter's my shit I, I can't really dabble with the other stuff I've never even taken a dab before I didn't want to know what would happen with that I feel like I just have like a huge panic attack but uh um yeah just butter man you know i, I make brownies and uh i don't i wish i had more of a 
exclusive story like you guys do but uh that's kind of where I it doesn't have to be fancy story. i think it's important for the people of the cheap home grow audience to know that it can be just something as simple as butter and it can be extremely effective but i see the american one is using the raise his hand feature in the zoom which i appreciate so let's uh give him the uh, floor i was just gonna say it's been my experience because like uh i am the big time i do uh i make oil with my trim unless I happen to have a couple uh, big harvests and I'll do some uh, water bubble hash. But it's been my experience that definitely when I use like trim from four different kinds of plants in the, in the batch of butter, the cookies are always seem much more better potency and yeah, just in general, that's one thing. And the other question I had was, I know a lot of people now they take the concentrates, add it into the butter and then make the edibles. I was wondering if you guys have experienced uh, differences in effect or uh, any other differences trying to do it that way or doing it with a full uh, extracting extracting it from the material itself in like a water bubble, uh, water and oil mix, you know, the way I do it. I personally have done a little bit of both. I've done it with flour and with uh, bubble ash or even RSO or FSO. And uh, Rick Simpson recommends that people use five indica strains when he makes his what he calls RSO. And I think that I personally also enjoy like that mixed like farmer's blend, like multiple uh, strains or varieties of cannabis to get more of a full spectrum and just kind of tick all the different boxes for you. So I'm a big fan of that. Um, but with um, using the RSO, whatever cannabis oil to cook with, I think it just depends on how you cut it and how many strains you're using. And, and each person is going to be a little bit differently impacted by that wide variety of profiles, but I think it generally has a pretty good effect for most people I've come across. I like to, I, I, I agree with you with the mixing of the, like all my trim, like what Dr. Coco was saying, I throw them in, in brown paper bags you get from me and go shopping or whatever, just ask for paper. And uh, I let like several different, like many different strains get in there. So it's dried and cured material before I even you know, do any extraction. It's not like a fresh frozen or anything like that. I like it to be nice and cured and dry aged. And before I even start using it for my FSO, because I'm looking, when I use that, when I'm using that, I'm looking to relax. I'm looking to go to sleep or, you know, towards the end of the night. And so I'm trying to get a little CBN in there. But um, as far as uh, another thing you can do is to, you know, everybody knows how, you know, you can find a million recipes for butter online. I don't really want to go through that, but um, you can also make a sugar and once you figure out how to do that, that really opens up whatever the hell you want to make. Like if you, to make the sugar, you just make a tincture. So like an alcohol, uh, extraction. So you just soak your material that's been decarbed in the, uh, alcohol for, you know, however long you want to go, the longer you go, the more green it's going to be though. Try to, if you keep it cold, you might be able to get away with it, not getting too green Then take that. And once you get it extracted, uh, filter it out to take that alcohol now and take a cookie sheet and uh, take your sugar and you can, yeah, it's probably better put the sugar in the bowl, pour your alcohol in it, mix it up really good so the sugar absorbs that alcohol. Take that sugar and spread it thin over a cookie sheet and bake that in the oven. You can bake off that alcohol. Um, don't do that in a gas oven. Alcohol is flammable. And, uh, or you could just let it set out with a fan breeze going over it. Whatever you want to do, just be safe. Uh, but then the uh, THC, you'll have THC infused sugar and you can mix that into drinks. You could, yeah, I mean, you can do, you know what to do with sugar. So uh, that's another easy way to get rid of a bunch of trim. Just do like an alcohol tincture and then uh, soak it in sugar. 
it's amazing all the uh, different infusion possibilities that are out there. I know, Matthew, you're a tea drinker. Just typically, have you ever experimented with making a tisane or a tea using cannabis? Yes, when I was um, when I was in high school, actually, I did do that with a friend. Uh, we were uh, becoming familiarized with the green dragon technique or whatever it's called. Um, do you know what I'm referring to? When I've heard of green dragon, it was usually like a cannabis oil or tincture. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so like you're breathing fire when you eat that shit. <laughs> <'Cause it's> alcohol. <laughs> That's right. It was an alcohol tincture. Um, and, uh, it was, it was, not something I would do again, personally, anyways, but it worked. I'm admitting Noah the grower to the chat. He will be here in probably just a minute. And uh, just wanted to give everybody the heads up. The American one, you had uh, something that you were talking about with the cookies before you asked the question about if there's a difference between like cannabis oil. What, what were you talking about? I had a thought there earlier, if we could go back a second. Oh, well, I, no, I think that's, that was pretty much it. I just wanted to know if you guys found a difference from taking it off the material. But you know what? One other thing I noticed that what, no matter what, when I made butter and cookies, the only times that it didn't really get me tired was when it was from one strain only. All the other times, like, or not, I wouldn't say tired, but more relaxed, lackadaisical. Those, it's rare that you get, I, or for me anyway, that I get an edible where I eat it and I'm like actually pumped up a little bit than earlier usually it's a sedative slightly and you know but i think that that's another route you can take if you don't want to be so down and you know or uh relaxed if you get a sativa and maybe just use straight um you know trim or bud from that plant it might not be so devastatingly tiring as all you know I think uh, we'll go to Spartan Grown after we introduce Noah and talk about the sour melon RSO or FSO. But Noah the Grower, go ahead and introduce yourself. We're talking about post-processing tonight. Hey, how's it going, everybody? Sorry I'm late. Uh, yeah, I'm Noah the Grower from the Scrum with two E's, and I'm happy to be here, guys. Now, do you have anything fancy that you like to do other than smoke or vaporize the flour uh, when you're all done, like making edibles or hash or uh, tinctures, anything like that? Yeah, I'll give a little uh, no other grow uh, tip here. Uh, what I like to do is with the trim is I make uh, coconut oil. And um, one of my buddies used to work for uh, a I-502 rec grower here in Washington. And uh, a little uh, trick that I use is uh, sunflower lecithin. You put sunflower lecithin in with the coconut oil and it will help the THC absorb more into the fat and it makes it more potent. So that's something that I like to do with uh, some of my leftover stuff after growing. I'll also throw in there, I just learned this from Breeder Steve. Uh, he mentioned that if you use hemp oil, like even like hemp seed oil, it's high in, I think, olivatolic acid. And that is a great carrier that helps uh, like cannabis oil, like THC, high, high THC or CBD varieties better pass the blood brain barrier. So it's widely available and actually super affordable. And it's also from the cannabis plant. I know hemp is looked at as a different plant, but they're both cannabis at the end of the day. So it's kind of cool to think that they work really well together as a carrier with one another. But Spartan, we talked a little bit about the um, single strain effects being a little bit more uplifting. And I know that Abolished grows one called Sour Melon, I believe. And uh, you could talk a little bit about making uh, FSO with that. Yeah, so the Sour Melon, we um, Abolished Pinot hunted that one. I've grown it a couple times. I'll probably end up getting it back again and grow it a few more times. It's one of those strains that's perfect for wake and bake. It, gives you, it actually had like a caffeine effect for me. It would like wake me up, gave me energy. 
and um so he had he, he ran a run of that and uh, had some had a bunch of trim up just sour melon so it wasn't a mixed run so i, I went ahead and, and processed that into fso and i didn't have any of this of the stuff but he said uh well i asked i went to his house uh, a while after i'd given it to him and i asked uh his uh his fiance i said well what would you guys think of that uh, fso and she's like Oh my gosh, she said when I, I asked him if, if it was like liquid crack or something. So apparently the same effect was um, transferred right into the uh, full spectrum oil, just, you know, concentrated. So they really love that. They've been saving that stuff. So they, you know, now it's, it, I think I love that because it's like a targeted medicine. You know what I mean? Oh, that's on the shelf for this reason. That's on the shelf for this, you know, that's what I, I got to clean the house. I got to get something done. It's nice to have that like cup of coffee, but in a cannabis oil, which is yeah. uh, pretty cool. Noah, I saw you were just walking us a little bit around the outside and showing us some outdoor plants there. I'll spotlight your video now so that the people can see it larger. Uh, pin video. Boom. What do you got growing out there? Is this some of your autoflowers? You're muted right now, Noah. Sorry. That's an elf right there. Yes, yeah, from uh, Mandalorian Genetics. That's an elf. And then this is an anvil right here. Just I put them out like uh, that looks like uh, June 27th. So, but they're doing pretty good for just being outside the whole time and planting them right in dirt. So, oh man, the the anvil that uh, Spartan shared on Instagram. I just want to interject here and say, really impressive looking plant, definitely. Shout out to Sequence in his greenhouse. I think he was killing it over there with some of that Mandalorian genetics, uh, Alf, and the anvil. The anvil is like an F5, I believe, and it gets super, super purple. And uh, they're already having harvest out there in Michigan. And I know a lot of the photo period stuff is into flower. Spartan Grown, do you have any outdoor going on this year? I think if I remember correctly, you said this is one of the years that you're not, maybe. Yeah, I didn't I didn't get to do it this year. I'll be doing them next year. But, uh, yeah, I'm going to do some in my backyard next year, just just some autos like that. And I'm probably going to hit up uh, full duplex and get some of that anvil. That anvil is so fucking beautiful. I took that picture on Sequence's greenhouse. I mean, that was, that was a, I mean, it looked almost like velvet. Like, I just, I just wanted to smoke it. Super like lilac-y purple and just beautiful, like soft, uh, bright purple. Um, this kind of leads into a question that we got from Twitter through Urban Grower. They said, how about an episode based on outdoor growing, harvest tips, and the season, pest prevention measures that can be taken uh, safely during flower when you should cut? Um, will heavy rain and bad weather ruin the harvest um, and how far to push an auto in a container versus in the earth, outdoor, etc. Just their two cents. So I figured um, as we were just kind of talking about that because Noah so perfectly transitioned us into that topic uh, with his autos. Um, is anybody else doing any outdoor growing this season? Doing some, I have some outdoor in my backyard. Um, however, it's everything in my backyard is part of a breeding a breeding program so it's uh, it's not going to be used for like what i typically grow for you know i'm just working a couple of projects right now so it'll be seeded which uh i have no problem with i actually like dry sifting the seeded bud i made my first seed run earlier this year and got a ton of dry sift hash it's beautiful and smokes amazing and uh the bud still got super resonance everyone i heard before that would say oh seeded bud is it doesn't get any more trichomes but if you have two dank cultivars and I don't know you get it under the right lights and keep it healthy they were some of the frostiest plants I'd ever grown and they were fully pollinated so definitely interesting to see yeah definitely seeded plants get just as resiny as non-seeded plants I know that for a fact um 
I'm not growing outside this year, but I could give a couple of uh, words of advice. And one I did, I learned a while ago, and I don't know how true it is, but I, I don't even know if it was concerning cannabis. It might have been a different plant, but they, someone was claiming if you keep that plant wet when it's young and you spray it like daily, then when the rains come, it's not like, I don't know if you'd call it used to it, but it'll suck up that water. It'll be more apt to have a, a, a thing to suck up that water. That was one thing that interested me at one point. And the other thing is plants, you know, live outside and some plants won't get that mold. Some I've seen a lot of people cut their stuff down early when they didn't really have to. I mean, if you see rot, you should definitely rip. Uh, if you see a spot of rot in the middle of a branch, I would probably take the whole branch and then investigate every single stitch that's near it and around the whole garden all the time. But if there's no rot and it rains or it's supposed to rain for two days, you could leave them and they might just be fine. You know, people panic and take premature outdoor and it's a shame sometimes. I've done it. I've done it to myself. So I know. Yeah. Personally, I feel like it's valid if you're really worried about it. But at the same time, it, it's not true. It's not necessarily true that that kind of thing will happen. I think that you make a good point there. Me and Gene from Mendocino has some pretty good memes about like people that chop down at the first sign of rain and flower and they get like super premature stuff. And he's just done enough seasons in his area and with certain cultivars that he knows can get through it. And one thing I wanted to bring up is the difference of the bud structure, like some really tight buds, even if they're fat, they're, the water kind of like runs off of them. And as we were talking about earlier in the, our cheap home grow chat, some of the terpenes aren't water soluble. And I think like some of the resin, it just doesn't react too much to water. It doesn't absorb the water as much, but then some buds that are like lighter and fluffier, like those big chunky, uh, heavier colas that have like that squishiness to them, they absorb water a bunch and it'll take on mold and there's like the no. various sativas that don't get as much rain in there go ahead doc yeah i mean i definitely think having your plants sit wet like underwater from the rain is going to provoke um, you know probably more white powder and mildew and stuff like that than bud rot per se but certainly also can increase the conditions that would be right for bud rot um but you don't need to have any water on your plants or sort of coming in from your plants I think the most of the moisture that that sort of contributes to bud rot is actually coming from the plant, coming from the transpiration off of the plant. Um, and in really dense colas like that, like I get bud rot every once in a while, especially in the, the July harvest. Um, and it's just the, the the conditions in the tent create that. It's, they're never wet. So um I don't know. What do you think? have to think about this, Matt? How much do you think that the sort of water that provokes situations like bud rot comes from like the sky versus coming pumped up through the plant? I think it mostly comes from like the, like, just like the general atmosphere. Like I've had conversations with people about, many people hear about relative humidity, but they don't hear about, oh, great. It's plain. Anyways, um, absolute humidity. You know what I mean? And so like, yes. even when you're checking the RH, there's an AH that's happening, just like you're saying, kind of like on the leaf surface, on the, on the surface of the tissue where respiration is, ha or where uh, transpiration is happening. Right. So you a know? lot of that water is getting pumped up from the roots of the plant up into the flowers and the leaves and all the rest of that, and then transpiring off of the plant. Um, and that, I mean, in those really dense colas, 
um, in the interior section of those really dense colas, it can get really sort of moist, but it's moist from water that's coming from the plant itself. It's not like rain falling on the plant and funneling down into the, the leaves or into the flowers or whatever. And a lot of plants American... have those waxy cuticles, right? That kind of have a little bit of a hydrophobic action, you know? Yep, I think the tenseness of the resin can definitely uh, impede the water from penetrating some of the buds, but the American one has his hand up on the Zoom, so yeah, go ahead. I just wanted to verify, yeah, don't get me wrong, right? Like, well, I really didn't have powdery mildew on cannabis, but I've always gotten botrytis when it came. And if it's, if you see it, I've, I've gone away and come back three days later, and it was spotty. When I came back three days later, the whole entire thing was decimated. So don't, like, just be all flip about it but if there's if you don't see it like yeah don't take it all of it premature you know that's that's yeah. what i'm trying to get to the point of and um oh another thing do well i used to go early early in the morning and I, i'd walk through where i had to get to and there's just everything is soaking wet like it just rained and it didn't rain at all it's dew in the in the fall there's a lot of dew and it could get inside the, the buds i believe and that's another way how moisture could get in there and the other thing I was going to say is I believe like that Pyre Milder, you see it when you flick, um, I had it on, um, what was it, cantaloupe leaves or something, but when you hit it, you see it just fly into the air. And it'll just even, fly Even in these situations, so Tao, think yeah. about this for a second. If you're in a really high humidity or, or near the dew point, you know, and you're, you're seeing dew in the morning outside, um, it's not just the water that's sort of precipitating out of the air that's getting your plant wet. The plant is still trying to transpire. It's still pumping leaves or pumping water essentially out of its stomata. And that water is not evaporating because there's no evaporative potential. There's no deficit. That's what vapor pressure deficit is. There's no deficit in the air for that water to sort of fill. Um, and that water that the plant is sort of pumping through itself, it just ends up sitting there on the plant. Um, or it, it creates those conditions of sort of the near surface effect where right around the plant is a super high humidity air. But that high humidity air isn't coming from the atmosphere in general or the climate in general. It, it's coming from the plant. The plant is pumping that moisture out into the air and creating that humidity. Brandon, I see you've got your hand up in the Zoom. Did you want to comment there? Uh, yeah, so one thing that people can do for their outdoors uh if it does rain or if you know are having an uh, issue like that um dr zymes use those enzymes you can wet those things down with those enzymes and usually you won't have an issue i use i mean i'm not endorsed by them and or anything but i use that stuff every five days at my facility you know um Another thing is too, uh, the most common occurrence where I see uh, botrytis outdoors or bud mold outdoors is usually typically not caused by rain or too, too high of a humidity. It's usually caused by burrowing insects who, um, who leave feces inside of the flower. Um, and, then, and then if you do have genetics that are not, you know, if you have something that's not healthy, right? Because typically what I see is healthy plants have a higher resistance um, to, to the pathogens. Uh, and then also, um, just like indoor, I keep my, uh, I keep my temp, my humidity 
consistently high. And it's okay. Sometimes it spikes during at the nighttime. It gets up to sometimes 85. And it's not the pro and that's not a problem at all. Uh, the, the issues that you'll start seeing, uh, things like uh, botrytis or powdery mildew, is when you're running those same temperatures or uh, your temperatures drop really low and your humidity does, right? And you have fluctuations. Uh, lower humidity will actually uh, promote the, uh, the growth of those types of spores. Um, so that can, the environment can help assist those things like take a hold. Uh, and it's the same thing outdoor. Like a lot of times people will start seeing that stuff later in seasons too, when it starts getting cooler uh, in the season. Those are a lot of times, um, you know, what I've experienced myself and what I see. I think what you said about the burrowing insects is very valid. One tip I would give for any outdoor growers is there's an organic input called Tanglefoot and you could wrap it around the bottom of your stalk and it prevents a lot of the climbing insects from going up. And that will prevent like a lot of stuff like caterpillars or, or bugs that would climb up the stem and cause you issues. Uh, and I like Bacillus thuringiensis, um, Israelensis, I think, I, BTI, basically is another good, um, I think, IPM input for out here in California. It prevents a lot of the uh, common pests that you might see. It's not like a cure-all for everything, but those two are pretty solid inputs that I think will do you very well in outdoor growing across the board for the most part. Yeah, I agree. Those are both good uh, pests, uh, uh, pest management um, regiments. I would say crop scouting too is like absolutely pivotal. If you can get out there every single day and look at the plants and if you can catch a outbreak before it becomes much bigger, that's a huge win. Like being able to pull off some leaves versus having to uh, take down an entire plant or get a much larger population of predators or something like that or you know, have to apply a more aggressive knockdown spray. Um, Matthew, I know that you are our IPM person, so um, this is talking about a little bit of the outdoor. I know that's way overly broad and uh, typically has to be more specific, but um, I know that you just recently put out a frequently asked questions video. Was there any one in that video that um, was asked maybe more than the rest that you're getting most commonly asked? Um, I definitely, well, I, I often like to say that the, the questions I get asked the most about are like, are actually about um, arthropods that aren't even a really big problem, like mold mites and stuff. Uh, people get really freaked out at springtails and mold mites and things like that um, when they shouldn't necessarily. But besides that, um, I got a lot of interesting FAQ, or if you want to check out that video, it's on my account, same one that's in the chat. But um, I, I mean, more relevant to what we're talking about here, about like fungal growth and that sort of a thing, I have a pest primer video for botrytis uh, scenario. So the, the, the causal agent of bud rot and also um, Golovinomyces sicariserum, which is a lettuce powdery mildew of cannabis or well of a lot of plants, but cannabis is one that it has been shown to infect. And I want to bring up that uh, specifically for botrytis, um, it's, an, it's commonly in a lot of plants, it's, it can grow and colonize endophytically. And so that has a lot of implications because it can also oftentimes exist in its host plant sort of asymptomatically or at least visually. And then all of a sudden when the plant bolts and starts to flower, then it starts because it's very associated with uh, uh, reproductive tissues and plants. And I don't actually know why that is. I don't know if, like what about the... Um, 
change in the physiology that, you know, when plants start to flower and bloom and fruit, um, there's probably a lot of confounding variables or not confounding, but, you know, there's a lot of factors that are causing that. Um, it definitely seems to be most common that that is where it happens. And uh, this is, a, I think, a good time to plug some of the things that might help prevent it. I know Spartan and others have uh, been big fans of trichoderma for helping prevent, I think, powdery mildew. It has been shown, I think, to be able to eat it. Um, for Bortritis scenario, I believe it's UVC light. If you expose it for like four hours to, uh, or maybe UVB, I think it was UVB actually. Yeah, it was UVB, I think. So they did like a strawberry experiment where they exposed strawberries that had Bortritis scenario to UVB light for like four hours, and then they had a dark period after that, and then it killed a large percentage of the Bortritis, which I found fairly interesting. And I think that there's going to be some licensed producers that are using that sort of tech in like Canada and stuff to sell their stuff that got butter out anyway. But I think um, other good things are like, um, I think humic and fulvic acids and um, aminos or like B vitamins have also been found to help plants uh, combat getting powdery mildew. Or just leaf stripping at the end of harvest if you know you're going to have a lot of moisture. Um, here in Michigan, you know, that has to be in an enclosure. So just throw a top on it, you know, throw a tarp over if you know rain's coming. You can do things to help help yourself out. You know, I, I know it seems common sense, but a lot of people don't do it. Or um, there was one other thing. Oh, I agree 100% with Brandon. I would say 90% of the time I see botrytis, the, the butter rot. There's a fucking worm in there, a worm craft all over inside it. So, I mean, or caterpillars and shit. Yeah, so the worst. You, yeah, that'll yeah. Definitely so, when you do pick it. your spot, don't pick under a tree because that's where a lot of that stuff falls out of. So, stay away from trees and, uh, you know, enclose it and, and then have a way that you can just roll out a tarp or something. And, uh, yeah, on that, on that yeah. note with the caterpillars, like, I, I get asked a lot about caterpillars. I, I guess that's an answer to your question, Jack. Um, and I, and they're very difficult. Um, this isn't a panacea, but, um, netting is a one-time buy usually. Uh, mesh, certain mesh screen, like thrip screens and other insect screens, are like a one-time buy that you can get that can hopefully allow enough airflow if you like orient if you construct them appropriately. But even if you even if it's just like a very simple mesh that's not really for thrips that are even so tiny and really great at getting into little crevices, um, that keeps the moths out, and then you know you don't have the caterpillar problem. For the most part, some caterpillars will travel along the ground and then go up another plant as a predator avoidance behavior. That's so, great advice. And it's also good for stopping that pesky spotted lanternfly. I see the yes. American one over there has his hand raised <laughs> so politely in the Zoom. I, I got a question about the um, caterpillars. But so the moths, are the moths bringing the, the caterpillars to the uh, phylosphere, the higher ups of the plant, or are they yeah. crawling up? both both yeah so like okay uh, so so yeah the moths will come in and then they'll lay their eggs somewhere on the plant or somewhere on another plant and then depending on what species it is there's a ton there's like a hundred different ways that this could go but um the moth you know the caterpillars will eat if they're a borer species or if they're a leaf tire uh, or a leaf roller or something like this and they might construct some sort of structure or shelter which is one reason why the biopesticides can be so hard to use, in my experience anyways, because if you don't apply them often enough, and Brandon's got the right idea about applying like the enzymes or something like kind of regularly, some sort of biopesticide for moths when you know that they're going to come, like usually in the autumn, but it really depends. 
Um, there's caterpillars all the time, really, depending on where you live. <laughs> and um, then they'll just bore right into the bud or into the stem or whatever, kind of immediately, because that's how they protect themselves from getting eaten or hurt or something like this. They're definitely one of the bigger pains in the butt of outdoor growing, as far as I've seen uh, with other people having issues. I know that I talked about BTI earlier, but the one that's more specific for caterpillar caterpillars that I'm familiar with is BTK. I don't know what the K stands for, but it's the same BT. Christaki. Thank you. Uh, do you find that it's yeah. effective, Matthew? I. Uh, yeah, but the the major thing about it is that you got to use it. Um, early enough in their life cycle, the caterpillars. So, so the the reason the way it works is that the bacteria produces proteins called cryoproteins. Uh, those proteins disrupt the um, the insect digestive system, and it's not good, and it'll kill them. But when they're older, when they're in a later stage of their larval life life stage, or you know later instar, then they're much more resistant, and so it can still have sublethal effects on the. Um, on the larva when it metamorphizes and turns into a moth, like maybe lower body weight or some other sort of deformation, but it's it won't like necessarily stop the proximate damage from the caterpillar itself. Thank you very much for uh, clarifying that. The American one, it sounded like you had yeah. something. My experience is I found out, like, cause I was, I wasn't there every day. I think you have to spray that stuff like every day because the things have to eat it into their gut to kill them. So as, if you're seeing them there already, that means, and I was going to say also with the Botrytis, he, uh, you know, calling it systemic. If you see it on, it's everywhere, basically. If you have it in one spot, it's probably everywhere, at least on that plant, right? And um, yeah, I guess that was it. But yeah, I tried the BTI and it, it was ineffective. Oh, and on so the BTK, I think it's more okay, for that. Yeah, I didn't try the BTK on the, the caterpillars that I was messing with. But the uh, trichoderma for the bud rat, I think I used that successfully one year. I mean, when it start, anytime it started raining, I would run out there with a more concentrated formula than the foliar spray suggested because I figured it was going to get wet with rain also. And I wasn't even afraid because I figured they were either going to get it or not. And I sprayed it like mad. And um, it was perfect at the end. And it didn't get hardly any basically none so i want to give a shout out to the chat gr420 community videos uh has a question for xenthanol but they also said subtilis uh subspecies or sp for the win uh they're a fan of that one i also wanted to throw out another one that i probably am going to mispronounce which is bb or buveria bassiana which might not be lethal but also has semi-lethal effects and is a great uh one to use within a combination of different uh ipm that i know matthew and many others on the panel have uh, used with some success so that's a good one out there you know uh, one of the things i kind of wanted to um, mention too and matt will have probably some information on this is uh part uh it's pamps uh particle uh, a molecular particle association so i uh, pathogen associated uh, molecular particles exactly boom that's what i meant to say big acronym there um so uh um, plants can sometimes they can identify things that are are harmful to them through these uh you know these signaling chemicals and they can uh have a response and i know that you know uh some endophytes will be pathogenic and some will be uh mutualistic or uh or, or you know they'll work synergistically and those associations could change i wonder if 
you know, there's been any research on any of the different types of pathogens that switch their modes of function, um, you know, if, if they have everything that they're, that they need, you know, within the plant is giving them and they don't have to like take extra, you know, they don't have to break anything down. I wonder if there's any research on, on those types of resistance factors, like where they, you know, create, you know, where it creates a, a change with the way that interacts within the plant. I have another question from uh, GR420 Community Videos over in the UK. They asked uh, Xenthanol, do you have thoughts on Spinosad or Spinosad? Not sure how that one's pronounced, but I've heard of it many times before. And I think it is a controversial one, if I'm not I'm mistaken. Yeah, and so I'll answer the second one first and the first one second. So for Spinos, the Spinosins and Spinosad are really effective against caterpillars, but I think that some of the contention comes up because I'm not a physical chemist and I don't actually know necessarily like legislatively, I think there are some contentious issues with like, at least in California where I live, where um, like, it just might not make sense. They got to make sure that everything's tested and everything works well because cannabis being different than like vegetables where you can wash off certain things and that sort of a thing. Do I think it's going to be super toxic to you? I don't think so, like, especially compared to a lot of other compounds. But um, I think that spinosad can be like partially translaminar, which means that it can go through the tissue of the plant somewhat, not systemic in that it will travel through the vascular tissue up and down but that I think that it sometimes can be a little bit like that. And that sounds like a really vague um, uh, statement to make, but I think that's part of the contention for its use legislatively. Um, But as far as the, so first I want to correct myself. Um, They're not pathogen associated molecular particles. They're pathogen associated molecular patterns. Um, and then there's also MAMPs, molecular or microbe-associated molecular patterns too. And as far as the research is concerned, like it's a very complex thing. It's it's kind of hard to talk about it um, because like so a lot of microbes will have a dual um, sort of life cycle where, like you're alluding to, Brandon, like they'll they'll be they'll be a maybe an endophyte, maybe even a beneficial endophyte for the plant, but then when the plant starts to senesce and dies, it goes to a second role as a decomposer. Um, There's some research that sort of highly, highly intimates that powdery mildew is developed from sort of a decomposer in that way. And um, over time, you know, gained virulence factors or genes that allowed it to be more basically a parasite rather than a decomposer. and so I, I came across this, this article, right? And it was talking about our muscular mycorrhizal fungi. And it was talking about the parts per million of phosphorus in the soil and how the, associ- how, uh, the association changed from a beneficial association when uh, the parts per million of the phosphorus were, for, were low and the plant was like exchanging its exudates and like kind of promoting this synergy to where the plant stopped promoting those when it had available phosphates. And the, so, and the plants that had already made those associations, they started becoming pathogenic because the, um, the microbe was no longer getting what it needed from the plant. The plant stopped providing it. And so it started to try to sequester nutrients in a different manner. 
That makes a lot of sense. And guys, I want to give uh, Kyle the opportunity. He actually won't be able to stay with us for the rest of the show. So I just wanted to give him a second to give his uh, final sign outs and, and shout outs. Oh, absolutely. Sorry, boys. Uh, I got to make a big package for a, a local grocery store that's been uh, basically, uh, I wouldn't use the word sell, but distributing my seeds. Um, and it takes me like fucking two hours to do it. And it's already uh, 8 p.m. here. But uh, yeah, I appreciate you guys. Uh, you know, all the feedback and uh, all the good things that you're teaching everybody. Jack, thanks for hosting. If anybody wants some uh, some quality feminized seeds, please check out pbreeding.com or Predicative Breeding if you want to see anything that I'm doing and reach out if you have any questions or uh, you're trying to learn anything or you want to start breeding and stuff like that uh, of that nature. And yeah, sorry guys. I uh, hope you guys have a good night and, uh, you know, bless y'all. Take care. Hey, thanks for joining us. I know that counting seeds is uh, quite the endeavor, having just packaged up like 25 for different testers. I know Spartan Grown was one of those people, but uh, it can be laborious to say the very least. And so Kyle, definitely get to that. And uh, don't, Kyle. don't let your business suffer on behalf of the podcast. We really appreciate any time that you were able to dedicate to us. Have a good one, Kyle. Thanks, boys. Okay. Take care. So I was curious if you guys wanted to keep with the... Um, sort of IPM topic that we were just on, or if we're coming up to the one uh, hour mark into the show, if maybe we haven't done this in a little while, maybe just go around the panel and, and see what everybody's got growing in their garden. Um, so up to you guys. Do you want to stay IPM or do a garden update? I'll let Brandon finish hey, his we thought. We can continue on IPM too. Well, I was just, you know, I was just thinking if, if something can change so quickly, and an association is what I'm talking about, right? If something can go from being extremely beneficial to something that's pathogenic in such a short period of time by just having one factor change, I think that if it's possible in that instance, then the chances are that it's happening all over the board, you know, because nature always, you know, things mirror each other in nature and things have a, a they kind of just, do the same thing right and so if it's if if we have research that's saying hey these things change like if then then i'm making the assumption i'm going to assume that this is happening all over the board with all different types of endophytes in the phylosphere phylosphere the endosphere the rhizosphere and the soil biosphere i think it's fair to assume that um tons of microbes have that relationship but uh not all of them they certainly have to evolve to be that way um, but a lot of, a lot of microbes, a lot of microbes associated with plants and insects and the soil and the, the rhizosphere, the pedosphere, the phylosphere, all these different spheres, um, they, they tend to have dual relationships. Buveria bassiana, we mentioned earlier, um, a lot of your sort of cordycipiae sort of groups, um, those sort of uh, those sort of fungi, they can be endophytes. They can have a close relationship with um, grasses or trees or certain groups. Um, and Buveria bassiana hails from, and I think Metarhizium also is this way. Um, they hail from a group that is actually really associated with grasses, which is why I bring it up the way that I do. And um, the cool thing was that they originally were. Um, animal parasites, particularly insects. And so when they developed this dual nature of endophytism, it was a really big boon for their hosts as well, because when insects would eat the grasses where the tissues were colonized by the endophyte, 
then that wasn't very great for the insect and it would die. And that's a net positive. That's a fitness benefit for the grasses. So they survive uh, a lot better, or at the very least they can outcompete other, um, other plants and that sort of a thing. And it, it lowers the pressure of the herbivory. So absolutely, absolutely a thing. It's, it's a really cool and fascinating thing too, whether they're viruses, bacteria, fungi. Um, you know, I love reading about like the in, the microbes and the insects and how those get transmitted. Some pathogens, like they have co-evolved with a certain group of insects for like hundreds of millions of years. And now there's like, they can't really exist without them now. Um, through their symbiosis, their genome has become smaller. And um, a lot of the genes that were associated with uh, free living is now not. So like, it's just kind of a fascinating thing to consider and, and definitely should be a thing that people consider for um, agriculture. The American one, I see you over there. Uh, do you want to jump in? Yeah, I just wanted to uh, say a couple of things because uh, a buddy of mine, or yeah, I guess you could call him a buddy of mine, was on the uh, AMF is uh, snake oil kick for a while now. And he, he even did a meme with the uh, guy sitting at the table. He's like, AMF is snake oil changed my mind. So I looked into it, and there is studies, and Russ Brandon brought one up about how if there's ample amounts of phosphorus, supposedly the mycorrhiza will turn, and since the plant has enough phosphorus, it's not going to feed the sugars to the mycorrhiza to get the phosphorus because it already has plenty. That's how I view how it all went down and what the argument was. His argument especially was in hydroponics. Uh, AMF is not needed and it's been I guess kind of argued or uh, insinuated that in heavy salts they can't even build a relationship anyway but I think they're a lot more um, survivable than people think and I think it would take a lot oh the other fact that I keep thinking in my head is everyone that grows and adds um, mycorrhiza the plants look happy and healthy so I don't care what anybody really tells me. The plant is telling me it's loving life. So why question the plant? Now, the argument could be made, you're wasting money on it. And that would be a valid argument for sure. I don't think you have to add a lot. You, if you add it once and it grows healthy, and the other part is you could, I think if you add molasses later, and if you want to try and do that, the mycorrhiza won't turn on the plant and become um, you know, a parasite because it'll be happy with the sugars that it has. But yeah, it's too, the world of microbes is too immense and uncharted and undiscovered and unexplored to the point where they're finding out stuff that, you know, we didn't even know about probably a year ago, maybe. So I'm a big fan of the all guests, I mycorrhizal. I know Spartan Grown had a great post over at Mitten Canico the other day where they were filling some holes and showing that you don't need to sprinkle a ton. I actually tend to do it, overdo it a little bit on the home grow side because I think the stuff's fairly affordable for those little pouches or whatever size you end up getting. But I do agree that a little bit, when I have done it in the past, it's been very successful. So Spartan, you've been uh, quiet over there for a little bit. I'd uh, love it if you jump in and, and give us some thoughts on that. Yeah, I was actually thinking of that exact uh, thing when we were talking about it there. Um, it's kind of a pet peeve of mine when I see these people do these videos when they're spreading like looks like a quarter cup to a half cup per hole. They're just going nuts with it. I'm just like, man, you guys must, do you get twice as good results? I, I doubt it. What, what are you doing? So, I mean, you only need to get that relationship on the roots and get it started. You don't, it grows along with the root kind of a thing. You don't need to, I mean, they've got the carrier is like uh, usually like a talc powder or something. And, and I would imagine that large quantities, it's going to cause issues in the soils. 
just go light with it. Your, your pocketbook's going to, you know, is going to thank you for it. And I agree with Tao. I mean, right. That's a good, perfect example right there at Mitten Canico, where it's not huge, but you know, 3000 plant count and uh, we use it and we were running cocoa with synthetics. And we definitely, it. Oh, sorry. Yeah, no, I, I agree that there's, there's really not going to be any problem with using it. I, and I sort of agree with Tao's point that it's, there's just not as much of a benefit of using it when you're running chelated nutrient salts um, for their primary nutrition. But, but roots still develop relationships with um, mycorrhiza. And yeah, you can supplement that and it seems to probably have a benefit. Um, I, I just wonder if it's worth the, the expense. And I sort of lean towards the not necessarily, but you know, it depends. It's certainly not something that I would sort of throw my nose at though. I've read, I've definitely read, and I've been to a lot of um, like CAPCA meetings and, and um, I went to a, there was actually a small hemp conference, very small in uh, San Diego and Encinitas rather, where um, they were actually going over the fact that like, like what would, like Tao said, um, like soils, I mean, I wouldn't use the word healthy, but like soils that have tons of certain nutrients, like that it is, it is a struggle. And I've read literature where it is a struggle for the mycorrhizal relationship to really um, establish in soils where like the phosphorus is really high already and that sort of a thing. So something about that interaction, you know, and of course for every species, it's going to be maybe a little bit different and, and um, I wouldn't be able to go into great detail, but definitely that happens. It's been documented. And also just because the soil is nutrient rich or whatever, or that, or even if it's poor and the plant can't um, sort of uh, provide the nutrients for certain species of microbes, it doesn't mean that they're going to suddenly become pathogens. Um, I think only of a, a select amount. How many, I couldn't say, but it really depends. So where my mind was, or my theory, I'll tell you my theory. You guys can shoot holes in it if you like, but this is my theory. It's not so much like I'm, I'm we're adding the mycorrhizae to... Um, somehow break down anything in the cocoa we're adding it because we know that um, it extends the range of the roots it basically adds a secondary root system if you will so um, it can grab more nutrient and it can grab more water even if it's just water i mean i mean if i can get more root mass i'm all for it so that's kind of the uh, theory behind using it and we are i mean our root balls i mean i showed them in the video so i mean you guys can judge for yourself but they fucking are great man that's even in, it's even in a synthetic situation. Fung, you know, um, and I put this in the in that big old global integrated pest management review video um, about like the ecology of cannabis. And I, I definitely mentioned that um, in the evolution of land plants, uh, there's a more and more compelling argument that uh, fungi might have sort of facilitated the development of roots like in general in plants. And so kind of ironically, kind of like what you're saying here is that a lot of ectomycorrhizal fungi, for example, will create that sort of hard tick neck net. And they'll kind of be that like second set of like rootlets and that sort of a thing, which is really amazing. And, but apparently some might, some fungi um, may have very well been kind of the precursor to roots for, for plants when they were just starting out. And I think that's really cool. Yeah, Matthew, I I read it. All, well, no, I I watched a, a panel. Someone said, 
that roots were specifically made to have a relationship with fungi, the secondary um, end up being a secondary thing was to anchor the plant. And then as an emergency uh, valve, they can uptake the nutrients through the roots without the use of microbes. But according to that guy, he was saying that was the original evolution of the root was to harbor life for the fungi. Yeah, that's definitely that's definitely similar to what I've read. Um, I don't know how conclusive these theories are about uh, interactions that are like 300 plus 500 plus million years old, but I'm I'm not I'm more convinced because I've read the more recent sort of literature on it and I couldn't be I couldn't be asked to quote it at the moment but uh, it's interesting that you also came across a present a presenter that was saying a similar thing that's uh, much more endearing I'll say this something too sorry to interrupt real quick no no you're fine go 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 that uh I want to say that it said that um new developing root hairs there's a correlation between uh a type of uh, symbiotic microbe and the development of that actual that nodule where that where it develops the uh, the root hair. Isn't myco just the term for like uh, anything? Uh, root. And then rhizel is myco root. is fungal. Yeah, so fungal myco is fungi and rhiza is root. So I think that alone right there should tell you. But then I, I heard another commercial grower that said you couldn't pay me to stop using it. And that like kind of put it into perspective. Like if you paid him to stop using it, he'd be like, no, like, I'm going to keep on using it. And it's just so effective in so many different systems in my experience. I, I, I'm the same way. I couldn't stop using it. Uh, the American one, I saw hand go up and then go down. Yeah, I was just going to say, uh, Russ Brandon, that's absolutely right. I watched, um, I'll put it in chat, uh, a presentation again, and it was literally on uh, hemp roots and it was a bacteria. The, this guy was only talking bacteria, nothing about fungi at all. And he has slides and everything of the, 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 the bacteria roam around the root cells around the outside of it. It's, I can't explain it, but basically. That was a presentation uh, of a future cannabis project, I believe. Yeah. I can't remember it either. I think they were talking about it, but the, the one I have, I'll put in chat. It's really, really awesome. And uh, what happens is the, the, the bacteria go into the root the cell wall of the bacteria literally dissipates. Any nutrients that were in the cell at the time go to the plant. Then the plant shoots that back out. And when it does so, it puts the, the cell wall back on the bacteria and it repeats the process. And then at certain areas, the, the bacteria will bunch up and create a nodule, like you're saying, and shoot out um, a root hair. So at a different location, they could eject the bacteria and gather nutrients in that spot. And it's just amazing. I'll uh, I'll find the uh, thing and put it in chat. Yeah, and um, I, I mentioned every time we talk about bacteria and cannabis, so I'll just say it again. Um, one of the cannabaceae, the genus Perisponia, is super unique because it has a relationship with um, rhizobia, uh, and it's not a legume. And the genes that allow it to have this sort of similar relationship with rhizobia um they seem to be the like homologous which means that they are the same genes essentially uh correct me if i'm wrong dr mj if i if i say this and if i articulate this incorrectly homologous would mean that it serves the same function or that they're not the same, the same gene way, right? but they're not the same exact thing 
okay so that's what i wanted to clear up there because that's kind of that was kind of the implication so i i might not be using the right word homologous here uh what would be the right word for them being the same gene conserved between the two uh like uh orders um Oh, so they're both they're both derived genes. They're not acquired genes, so they're derived from the same source. Yeah, basically. So they're um, yeah, that might still be homologous. I'm looking. I was coming at it more from the definition of the term, um, but I, I think you may be correct that those are considered genes that m maybe aren't identical. But I think if you have the same gene in um, descendants of different, you know, different related species that have acquired the same gene. Um, I think that that may be considered homologous. Hold on, I'll try to see if I can clarify that. I appreciate that. So, but yeah, so with the, regardless of what the semantic word is here, the point they were trying to make was that the really cool thing was that Perisponia in the Cannabaceae is like the only one that has these genes that's not a legume. And they're the same genes, I guess. And so, and I, and I put it up in that global IPM video that I made about a couple months ago. And it's very fascinating to me because it could have implications for cannabis growth, I think. Um, but it's really bizarre because that's the only example. And it's colonized across the Wallacea line, kind of where Saul is, or the continent known as Australia. And... Um, you know, is, this just, PGR, is this PGR bacteria? PGR. A plant growth regulator? Does it produce any secondary metabolites that like will change the physiology or that have some beneficial? No, these are, this is a nitrogen fixing rhizo, uh, rhizobia. Oh, okay. Diazotroph, a diazotroph. Okay. Um, but yeah, to... but that was why it was so interesting because it was like a non-legume plant with a legume uh, rhizobia relationship. I gotcha, man. So the, the term, it's a, it, it is a homologous sequence, but they're called orthologous. O-R-T-H-O-L-O-G-O-U-S. Um, okay. I used, I think, the wrong term in the video, in fact. So, so orthologs are, different, are genes in different species that originated by vertical descent from a single gene of the last common ancestor. I appreciate Boom. you looking that up. I love it when we can clarify. I didn't mean to like uh, offend on another show. I like looked up a definition and I was like, oh, this is for me and like other simpletons. But I just meant, I was calling myself a simpleton and I like to have the just straight definitions sometimes. So I think it's it's great to give out those definitions. I don't yeah, want to I, I knew there was a whole, there's a whole little set of words related to that one, but that one is orthologs. I had never heard that word before today. So shout and out to both of you. there's also paralogs and homologs. <laughs> But uh, I want to shout out somebody in the chat. We've got Eagle Gardens One. Uh, he has his own show. We talked a little bit about it before we went live, actually, because a few members here, uh, myself and Spartan Grown, have been on there. But Brandon Rust will be on fucking talking shit with Eagle uh, coming up on Monday. I believe that's tomorrow night. And we've also got Dr. MJ. It's going to be the Thursday show. So shout out to Eagle Gardens in the chat and shout out to that show, fucking talking shit with Eagle. It's a great time every single night at 1130 East Coast, uh, 830 on the West Coast. It's uh, definitely a great show, and shout out to him and all of his viewers and fans in the chat that also support uh, the show. That's cool. I'm going to have to listen to, to Brandon's as a dry run for mine. Smart move. And Brandon's actually going to be a little bit early. I think they're starting at 11 or uh, 8 o'clock here on the West Coast, if I remember correctly. So. 
Yeah, I go to bed early, man. It's but you know, I'm also doing it on my uh, my I have the day off the next day, so I can uh I can stay up a little bit later past my bedtime. You can definitely roll one up on that show and smoke and chill and have a good time with the people in the chat and Eagles. Uh super awesome dude he's been growing for a really long time he's a badass and just uh he's got a really great show it's like the nightly show with letterman or whatever but the cannabis version he's got all the people from the chat like breeder steve type people coming on he has really uh, big names he said uh, danny danko from high times and a whole bunch of other but, but most importantly spartan grown and uh, people like us on this chat right that's what people here are here for right they they listen to this show because they love all of us and i like to support the shows that also support us and our panel members so shout out to that show Eagle's a, I mean, a personal friend of mine. So yeah, I, I'll go on his show anytime he wants when I get a chance. Um, I actually popped in last night because I was up super late. But uh, and he asked me to come on, but I was just like, nah, I was way too faded to. I was ready for bed. <laughs> Good to know your limits, you know. <laughs> but he likes to. I mean, I'll get on there talking, and the next thing I know, I look down and it's like three in the morning. I'm like, oh man, I got it, because he stays up late, man. That's he, exactly he the way. That's exactly the way we like people to be on when they're on that show. Nice and faded, Spartan. You would fit right in. <laughs> I've been on there twice, I think. So I've been on there. Uh, earlier, we were talking about uh, like concentrates and beginning the show. I forgot to mention one of the things that we're going to start doing is uh, it's called RHO, and it's a solventless. Uh, it's solventless full spectrum oil. Looks legit. Looks kind of like a Rick Simpson oil, but without solvents. And uh, I mean, that's pretty cool. What's the H in R H O stand for? Uh, Rich Hopper oil. The person who developed it. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, it's. It doesn't have a really nasty, like super bad taste, and it can be strain strain specific. I personally love all the uh, clean concentrate that's coming out, whether it's uh, solventless hash, even the solvent stuff nowadays that you can get from a legal market if you're lucky enough to be in like Michigan or California or Oklahoma, where they have lab testing that say it's been purged down to this amount. And some of them are like really, really, really low, like almost no PPMs. Uh, but the solventless stuff is my personal favorite. I the, talking about earlier, I don't know, that kind of looks like you were showing off some hash there, Brandon. Was that hash in that jar? Uh, rosin. Okay, Rosalind. Yeah, I, I love making bubble hash with uh, whatever term I do get. I grow mostly for flour, but if I don't make it into uh, butter for edibles, I do occasionally, like once a year on the coldest day of the year out here in San Diego, I'll make a, a bunch of hash. I actually have some from Brandon years ago, gave me maybe like a half pound of trim or something from Gorilla Glue just in a bag. And he's like, hey, I don't want this, but uh, you can have it. And I was like, hell yeah, man. And I just, I've had enough hash to sustain me. But whenever I go to make it the next time, I'm going to use that and I'm going to hopefully get super sedated by it because it's one, Gorilla Glue kind of glues you to the couch anyway, but two, it's like several years old and definitely oxidized. So I think there's going to be some CBN in that hash for sure. Dude, the Gorilla Glue dumps, man. Uh, we pressed at the facility. Uh, we, we have our trim bins, right? And I collected uh, 15 grams of Gorilla Glue uh, Keef. And I pressed that and got 10 grams of hash rosin. What bag do you like to put your keef in when you're pressing uh, micron? What I put says? on a 37 micron. Nice. I love all the uh, different techniques and, and temperatures and, and pressure and how long people are doing that stuff for. It's definitely an art and it's an up and coming thing. There's only a few, like, I'd say maybe like a thousand people or less out there doing it really well. So if you want to get into uh, something and be like an artisan or a craftsman, 
in the cannabis industry, I think making hash, uh, solventless in, in particular, 710 Labs, for example, out here, there's a hundred dollar grams of their Percy rosin, which is water hash that they press into rosin. And that hundred dollar gram in San Diego out the door goes $134 after all the taxes. And people I didn't know that it. they had access to a time machine that makes you go to the 1980s. Like, that would be interesting. Um, yeah, you know, there's a huge <laughs> here too in Oklahoma. There's a lot of people who are vertically integrated that are strictly growing for the hash rosin market. And uh, it's, it's a growing popular trend, you know. That mango room that everybody's been kind of, at least for me, like oogling over with like the side lighting and everything that like basically a two car garage build out that's just epic. They turn 100% of that into rosin. None of it's smokable flower. Uh, Noah, the girl, you've got your hand up. I want to give you an opportunity to jump in. You're on mute. Yeah, I was, yeah, was going to say, uh, when we're talking, you guys are talking about the Gorilla Glue, uh, Gorilla Glue Forest specifically. I've grown different Gorilla Glue, but I mean, uh, that's probably one of the best uh, all-around plants you can grow. I always try to tell everybody that's it's not like a, a beginner plant. You gotta gotta know how to do it. You don't want to do it at 56 days. You want to push it at least nine. But uh, that's a plant that will, you know, you can get high THC. You can get good yields. It's definitely something that should be a stable in most people's garden. And then another thing I heard earlier that I just wanted to touch on is, man, I'll tell you guys right now, don't grow with PGRs. I don't care what people say. That's not good for you. It's not going to, there's, I mean, there's other ways to get a higher yield. Uh, that's definitely not, I mean, I, even though I know it's, it's not even really legal, most of it's nasty stuff, but yeah, I would definitely not recommend growing that, especially if you're trying to use it for medicine. I think we were referring to um, bacteria that has sort of like effects on the plant. Was that not the case or? No, sure. Let's just, but let's just say that in a, in a vacuum, I, I would not be, using PGRs on cannabis that I want to smoke myself. So, uh, You're talking about synthetic PGRs. We're we are talking about uh, plant growth regulators such as hormones or secondary metabolites that have some type of uh, chemical function. Like kelp or, or seaweed have some, don't they? Like You know, cytokinin, tricantinol, uh, alfalfa has some of that as well. Yeah. So well, there are natural ones. Kelp and a lot of different natural stuff back going on different stuff like that to you know help feed my uh, microbes and stuff in my plants but yeah i, I, know, agree. I know avoid guys synthetic it, avoid synthetic pgrs that shit is nasty and it's literally cancerous um i believe that a lot of the studies have shown uh, like paclo for example most of them are is one of them a lot of those chemicals are banned in, in conventional agriculture and for some reason these nutrient companies are able to not put that what they're putting in these labels uh, on their bottles and people are Dumping it into their resis. By the there way, Derek, I'm trying that uh, lime kush for the first time. Shout out to you. How do you like it? What do you think? It definitely hits that lime note, and it's got some cushiness too. Definitely. Um, I also feel like like the ember like lasts longer in the in the pipe for whatever reason. That just might be a weird coincidence. I personally didn't cultivate that one. It was from my buddy Jack, uh, another Jack out there in San Diego. But uh, I personally enjoy the smoke. I, I'm I'm never sure what to think about the ash. My stuff that I cultivate usually has super like light, white, fluffy ash, which I know some people think doesn't mean anything. I personally think it means at least something. Like if something burns dark, dark black, and hard, and like the ember is uh, like.
a rock almost versus something that sort of when you blow on it, it just floats off in the air and it's uh, light white, I think tends to be a little cleaner, at least on my throat and in my experience. But I know everyone has different thoughts on that. Yeah, I think that heavy metals metals can definitely get uh, caught up in plant tissue for sure. You can see it in- 100%. I mean, there's people who can have beautiful, beautiful cannabis, but they might fail with heavy metals, especially like, so check this out. It's actually more common in organics uh, when people are using a lot of compost that hasn't been tested because a lot of people are are putting compost on the market Mm -hmm. and that's not tested for heavy metals. So you might get cadmium, lead, you could get some aluminum substances and you know that can I mean that can fail you spartan grown and uh mitten canico i know you guys kind of made a public service announcement because you uh use canna cocoa and that led you guys to failing for cadmium in michigan which tests for heavy metals thankfully you guys found out what it was changed to a different cocoa problem solved so i think it's really awesome that testing actually gives us insight into what medium you're using i use the michigan made mixed soil he has testing for every single input that he has that shows that it has no heavy metals. Some people claim that the Papa's Perfect Poo actually has some, his worm castings may have some heavy metals in there. I don't use that, but the soil itself has been tested. And uh, I personally really like that mix, but. Yeah, I use that same mix at home too. I, I really like it. Well, that's the base and then all my organic. It's your ash. Stuff. Would you say it's like black, gray, white? Uh, in fact, I usually get comments that, you know, you know, if somebody who hasn't had my stuff before, they, that's usually one of the comments I get is how smooth the smoke is. And, um, you know, I don't know. I don't attribute, I think the ash color, for sure, I, I believe that it tends to be a harsher smoke if the ash is darker. But then I think water has a lot to do with it. Like the, like if you can get, you yeah. can get the stuff from a dispensary and be so, so dry and it'll burn super white ash. Yeah. The, the darkness in the ash is uncombusted carbon, and I agree that it, moisture content plays a big role in how much of it's going to combust when you burn a bowl. I think that the biggest difference between getting weed that sort of smokes or it produces um, white ash or black ash is how it was dried and cured and what how much humidity it was stored with. I definitely think the burning of it matters like because i've even experimented with using a hemp wick versus like a bic lighter versus like a torch lighter on the same flower and the torch lighter which burns the hottest obviously gets the whitest ash because it's able to burn through more of that material yeah absolutely i mean that's exactly what's happening the blackness of the ash is just that uncombusted carbon i've also noticed if you find that in a joint if i am seeing a joint's not like ashing like when i'm trying to tap it out it's still kind of thick in the joint if I blow back into it a little bit and kind of get the embers going in the middle of the joint uh, for a little bit and then take a few big puffs in and I go to ash it next, it falls off the end of the joint a lot easier. And um, it could be a curing thing or or cultivation thing, but it's definitely something I've noticed just in consuming cannabis in that way. Uh, I can bust it 90% of the time. I have a vaporizer and I wish I could just switch to that alone, but like Spartan over there token it up. Uh, I I guess I have been vaping a little bit on this little watermelon (laughs) vape pen, but it's uh, delicious and tested and safe, and they use good materials. Uh, shout out to Dime Vapes in California. They're a pretty legit company, at least in my opinion, Lime. but I very rarely use them. Shout out to Brandon. What kind of nug is that? Some Limerilla. Brought the Limerilla back, brought it out here. She's a good one. One of my uh, favorites. Yeah, I'm excited. Everybody- 
doing some stuff with it here, some projects with it. Everybody ahead, consumes no. cannabis their, their own way. Um, but I think that uh, something's going to come out eventually about those uh, little cartridges. I don't care how clean they are. I think this you mess with something. Getting out, some reverb from somebody on the. Is there a thing up? Oh, it's me. I'm sorry. <laughs> it was probably. Yeah, I think that uh, those little cartridges. I think something's going to come out. I mean, they, they've only been around for like what nine years. Um, I think that uh, smoking organic, clean, uh, pesticide-free cannabis. Um, through a bong or an actual vaporizer like a volcano or anything like that. It's probably going to be the healthiest way, obviously, unless you're like making edibles or something. But I mean, and I get it. Those things are convenient. A lot of people, it's a big thing. A lot of people do it. But I always just recommend to people, man, just, you know, like like that stuff Brandon has right there. I bet you that right there is as clean as anything. And I'd rather smoke death than those cartridges any day, all day. And I get it. People have their own thing. But I always just stamp that flag. You know, Bob Marley did it. You know, Willie Nelson did it. So that's all I'm going to do. Bob Marley died of cancer. Just going to throw that out there. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I'll say this. I think that it the depends CIA on... The gave Marley cancer. And they've had those cartridges <laughs> around for a lot longer than nine years. I'll just say that as well. But Blood poisoning? There is definitely... It depends on... Like, CannaSafe did a lot of testing where there was a pen that passed the testing in the oil and the materials passed the testing, but as soon as it heated up, it failed testing. So you do have to be very careful. But then there are ones that use just legitimate materials that even when they get hot and at the operating temperature are clean. Uh, the American one, I see you got your hand up over there. All right, yeah, I got a question for everyone, and it was uh, peaked in my memory because of uh, someone in chat. Oh, now my chat's not coming up, but it, it uh, someone in chat was asking, it was Leslie, uh, let me see if I can find it. Leslie Bell 27. Can you yeah, synthetic nutrients and compost teas? Right, so that's the question that peaked this question, but I wanted to, you guys to everyone to answer both and all so i just came across a powder form of uh sulfate phosphate sulfate uh wait no potassium sulfate all right and it's labeled organic now it's just like a powder that's under water soluble now is that really organic would you consider that organic brandon rust and the next question is because you could find perhaps all of that labeled organic in powder form, and you could create your own water-soluble, quote, organic, which is basically what I would consider salts. So what do you guys think on all of those questions? And answer Leslie's first, please. Thank you. Okay. I think that to begin with, it depends on what you mean by organic. I mean, is it does it meet the legal standards of the definitions of organic? I would imagine that it does if they've labeled it that way. Um, but whether that also fits your sort of philosophical definition of what organic should be is, is probably a, a different question. So I think it, it's important to, to understand what organic means and what you want it to mean for you. Go ahead, Brandon. Okay, so first of all, uh, I made videos on both agitation and the reason why I don't use compost teas. It's on my IG feed. Um, so- I saw that. That, that being said, um, I don't do compost teas, and I wouldn't recommend mixing compost teas with nutrient regimens because the purpose of having a nutrient regimen is to have a specific recipe in which you are supposed to follow at certain points throughout the grow cycle to get the maximum yield, right? That's the, the aim of, you know, the synthetic uh, method of growing. Um, 
as far as the other question that was that was asked so there are many different things potassium sulfate copper sulfate iron sulfate which are naturally occurring minerals yes they are salts but they are not synthetic so that is why these things are uh, able to be labeled as organic is because they're typically uh they come from a mind source right so can I ask a quick question about that yeah um if there's if the compounds are synthesized in a lab or rather i, I should ask the question this way um it sounds like the sourcing is important for the labeling yeah, yeah. it is and and that's that's sort of why i started it with it depends on what you want organic to to mean um it's also why some organic styles of of uh, ir or of uh, agriculture are not really either sustainable or necessarily even environmentally friendly, depending on how those um, inputs are sourced. Well, cannabis is federally illegal in the United States, at least, so it can't even get the organic guidelines. So there's stuff like Clean Green and Dragonfly, Earth Medicine, uh, Dempure certifications and things like follow the organic and then try and take it a step further and try and show that they're cleaner. But technically, no one can really call except for Tom, uh, Farmer Tom on Instagram, because the federal government actually came out to his cannabis farm and deemed it organic. So he is the only cert certified organic cannabis farm in the United States that I'm aware of right now. Right. But you, we're still just talking about whether the inputs are considered organic, not right. whether your operation could be certified to label your produce as organic. Now, I don't, I didn't mean this interruption to interrupt Brandon too much. So could you please uh, keep going there? I, I think that, you know, I guess you have to, the definition of what you're using for, towards organic, because um, there are a lot of minerals, you know, most of what I do um, is remineralization, top dressing minerals, things like calcium and things like sulfur. And these are minerals, right? And they come from the earth. Um, I, I don't, so I use a lot of the, that kind of stuff, right? And it's organic. Everything that I have is not just OMRI listed. It's CDFA certified. Um, that's for the people who don't know, that's California Department of Food and Agriculture, which is pretty strict. Very strict. Um, Strictest. Yeah. So it's one of those, it's kind of like the gold standard for, uh, for organic certification. So I look for that, you know, on the types of inputs that I buy. And then I also source the things from companies that I know are uh, like legitimately sourcing these things like locally and through the right, through the proper channels, right? Um, one of those actually being uh, Seven Springs Farms. They have a huge catalog of organic inputs and you can get almost any, you can get anything you need out of there. Um, but I guess it depends on your, on your thing. If you're talking about, oh, you can't use any types of salts at all, uh or compounds like you know things like epsom salt right that's magnesium magnesium and sulfur it is a salt so is langvinite Lang langvinite is a salt mineral if you couldn't use any of these types of things uh to be called organic then i wouldn't be an organic grower i've seen stuff that's omri listed that's like blue salts it almost looked like miracle grow yeah i think i, I agree with that brandon i think that you're you're 
attention paid to sourcing is important and commendable. And I think that it's the point that I would just want to raise in this is the fact that something is organic does not mean that it's sustainably sourced. And it does not mean that it's environmentally friendly. Um, and so if those are issues that are concerning to you, then you have to go beyond just looking for an organic input. You also have to pay attention to how this stuff is made or where it comes from um, and the conditions under which it's produced. And there are a lot of specific organic inputs that are either produced in sort of socially unjust ways or environmentally unsustainable ways. And I think that a lot of growers get into um, organic cultivation. Well, there's two reasons that people tend to, to go in that direction is either for um, a perceived benefit to, to their own health or a perceived benefit to the environment. And if you're doing it for the perceived benefit to the environment, then um, you need to look deeper into those organic, those inputs, that, how they're being sourced. I've heard that some people criticize just like nitrogen as one big one in general, that there's not a great um, non-controversial source, but then there's people that do like close the loop and they grow all their own stuff on their farm. And then they use that for their inputs to grow their plants with. So I feel like that's pretty non-controversial and good for the environment. But a lot yeah. of the stuff, like you said, Dr. MJ, it could be organic, but uh, bat guana, for example, they use child labor in some cases, or just like unethical labor where people are their masks get clogged up and then they go in these mines and they're inhaling this terrible stuff and live horrible qualities of lives and right and unsustainable mining that, that destroys the bat um habitat yeah so bat can't live there anymore and they're yeah it's problematic exactly so there's there just because it's organic and back guano can be considered organic that doesn't mean that it, it, it's like the environmentally friendly choice um I, I can almost guarantee you other sources of nitrogen, conventional sources of nitrogen, have a smaller environmental impact than bat guano mining. Yeah, I just um, happened across a YouTube posting from um, Joshua Steesland, where he was uh, arguing that, you know, you, you compost the whole plant, and then you have everything in that compost, nutrient-wise, to create a whole new plant. But if you're taking out the buds repeatedly, so you're losing that portion of nutritional value that could have been in the compost for the plant. So I, he's going to try and do it without adding anything, supposedly, but the cannabis plants from the previous run back into his no-till and go from there yeah. without adding anything but microbes. But I think he's going to run out of potassium and phosphorus rather quickly, perhaps. But I don't know. But it's an interesting thought, right? Yeah, well, farmers have done things like that. I mean, a lot of the farmers that I work with in, in Mexico and Central America practice those kinds of, of strategies. But they all end up having to, to supplement that, um, either with organic or inorganic inputs. But you can get yourself quite a bit of the ways there. But yeah, there's, there's losses. I think um, as far as all of that goes, first of all, just to address your question, um, I like to just kind of show you my thinking so you can kind of understand it the way I look at it. But um, with what you're asking as far as how organic is this, really what you're doing is you, you've got to add the minerals that you're losing. And you can do that either with plants or the minerals themselves. The plant, the you know, plant. What I mean by plants is like a compost of a plant that's uptaken that mineral. It's mined that mineral for you. You know, plants being a tree, even or uh, you know, trees are the ones that get the, the most minerals probably. 
But I mean, there's a lot of different ways you can do that, or you can just get the direct mineral source. But when you go to the direct mineral source, that tends to be a little bit more devastating to the planet than if you use the plant and let the plant do that mining, I guess. But uh, to me, the, the advantage of the mineral itself is that that also has to go through testing. You know, if you're decomposing a plant, you're just kind of winging it. You don't, you don't really know unless you're really testing every step, step of the process. If you get your mineral directly from a source, you know it's tested at the source clean and you know you're using a clean product. So yeah, you're probably putting a hit on the environment, but at the same time, you're getting a big, huge plus as far as the health side of things. So it is a trade-off. I want to throw out there that a stat that I heard on some environmental uh, video that basically put like 70% of the earth's pollution on like the top 100 companies. And that's internationally, like US, China, uh, India, and all these things that we like agree to on climate accords and then just kind of bounce out of and, and don't follow. And like, if you look at cruise ships, just dumping stuff in the ocean, what we do on a home grow perspective, or even if we get up to the large, larger scale agriculture at some point, I just feel like our impact is <laughs> we should try and be our best and minimize our footprint as much as we can. But that being said, most people listening and, and here right now are at such a small scale that um, I think we can give ourselves a little bit of a break on the inputs because there are much uh, worse people out there damaging the environment. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't try. I think we should always try and it's great to talk about. And that's why I think we should, we've had a great discussion about it. But I think um, it's important to keep in perspective that there are much, much bigger things that need to be regulated if we really want to uh, fix the environment and, and care about regulating that. Yeah, a truly holistic system would, would look at as many variables as possible. And I think that's an, that's always a great sentiment to echo, I think. Yeah. I think we all can agree that, you know, just know your source. Everybody kind of already said it already. But if you know your source, I mean, that's, I mean, that's probably the best you can do. And for me, how I how I feel good about my inputs is I've been just ordering stuff from Build a Soil. I know Jeremy's pretty stringent on his stuff that he brings in there, so he takes that worry away from me. So I, I'm good with what, what he's showing me. I was just going to plug them because they do side-by-sides. Uh, Jeremy's awesome. He does take a lot of time to vet his products. And even if you do pay a little bit more, um, it goes a long way with some of the stuff. And he does have some really good sales, like that Build-A-Bloom that you got, Spartan. I'm actually looking into getting that because when I looked at all the goodies in there, I was like, wait, I could just get this all in one thing. And it's actually fairly affordable and might allow me to reuse my soil mix over and over uh, successfully. So I'm definitely happy that there are companies out there like the, like Build-A-Soil and others. Uh, Country Roots, I think, is another cool one that has like um, OHN and all these different uh, KNF inputs that you can get if you don't want to make it yourself. FPJs, FPEs, uh, plant permit. Uh, you know, there's so many different things, <laughs> these acronyms. I It's like alphabet soup for me sometimes, but they definitely, uh, there's a lot of options out there for people that want to do organic that may not have the time or the space or the effort to put into this stuff. But if you have a few bucks to shell out, it will last you a really long time and uh, perform really well in your gardens. The stuff I'm trying out was the craft blend. I haven't tried the, the build a bloom yet, but it is interesting. Like if I run out of top dress, like for bloom, I might consider trying that. Very cool. I wanted to go back to one point earlier. I was talking about how I was hitting on this little pen, but I will say like, that's very, very rare. And uh, like I said earlier, 90% plus of what I use is a flower, either smoked or vaped. And I think that I agree with you, Noah, that that is probably the safest. It's been around the longest. Um, we don't have to worry about the inputs. I don't have to research the company and what batteries they use or atomizers they use and try and see if the oil is actually safe and tested and all that. So 
I'm a big fan of homegrown and getting it from my buddies, so I don't have to really worry as much. So yeah, it's it's hard to grow that uh, distillate and uh, the batteries and uh, all that other stuff, but uh, you know, with uh, help from the guys on this show and uh, a little bit of research and a little bit of trial and error, bro science, you can learn how to grow your own, and that's uh, I think a huge advantage in today's climate and the world we live in. Especially if you sign up for stuff like Dr. MJ's Grow Challenges, where you can maybe win some free lights if you just are starting out. I think uh, some of the stuff's given away after some of his reviews and stuff. I think it's uh, awesome for people in the community to have opportunities, not just him, but if you're on Instagram, make yourself a cannabis-specific account. If you don't feel like uh, comfortable sharing publicly on whatever your personal account is, and you can sign up for lots of giveaways for tents or fans or whatever, follow these companies that produce yeah. stuff, and uh, you can get in the game and, and grow your own a lot cheaper and more affordably than you may have ever thought possible. And there's tons of advice from people like ourselves and many, many other great content creators out there. Yes. Yes. You guys can win a big, everything you need to grow. It's just like a, like plug in play grow setup um, on Tuesday. If you want to get in the, the plant training grow challenge and start your journal, you'll be eligible to win that in our lottery drawing. So um, it's a great way to grow together. I think that, it's wonderful to grow with along with other people, whether you're a first time grower or not. It's a lot of fun to sort of see how everybody else is doing when we're growing together. I think as many of these competitive or not competitive, uh, just grow along. It's like a cooperative is the word I was looking for. Grow type challenges, even if there is some competitive nature, like the grow off where there's a cup or a, a winner at the end. But when, even when there's not, I think it's great to get as many people growing as possible. As a, my late buddy Subcool said, like overgrow the planet, overgrow the world. I think that's an awesome thing. If you can teach anyone to grow, uh, the more people, the better. Because if then when you go travel, you can visit awesome people that have their own home grown and you don't have to worry about necessarily uh smuggling your own plants because right now it's not necessarily legal to travel with cannabis in most states so uh it's definitely be awesome if like i know if i go to michigan i don't got to worry about bringing anything because i got a bunch of guys in michigan that are growing some awesome stuff and like same with oklahoma so uh shout out to everybody out there growing their own and uh i think it's a beautiful community that we're building and it just keeps getting bigger and bigger i keep seeing first time new growers having their first harvest and most of them are actually starting to look really good because they can get entry-level lights and, and, and equipment and materials so much more affordably now than even five years ago or 10 years ago. And the quality you can produce yourself is just so much uh, higher than it's ever been with not much experience if you just follow a decent path. I know we've only got about 15 minutes left here and uh, Spartan Grown. I know we like to give you a little bit of a buffer between uh, now and your next show with the... Uh, Michigan Bros Grow Show. So if you want to maybe uh, say any final thoughts that you have before you do your sign up. Yeah, I appreciate that. So do my dogs. But uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I just want to say, uh, you know, I had a good time last week. I missed you guys. I'm sorry. Uh, but I did have a good time hanging out at Sequences Greenhouse and checking out all the uh, plants out there. Um, one thing I didn't get to mention earlier when um, Matthew was talking about the screens, they do work great. I had suggested them put screens on their intakes because they had found one caterpillar and they haven't found one since so the screens I'm, are working. I'm really happy to hear that that's excellent and uh yeah just awesome hanging with you guys um it's funny it was like Brandon said before I think we were taping saying it, or maybe he said why we we're taping this is like his church it's kind of is for me too I look forward to it all week so uh, awesome like hanging with you guys and uh growers love to chat and everybody else see you guys Later. Growers Growers love Spartan. Spartan. thanks for joining for sure. us man 
I'm so happy to hear that uh, sequence. I saw that little screen and it was such a simple, effective solution. Like sometimes it can just be that easy. You know, you just cover up the little intake fan with the screen and it blocks the bugs physically from coming in and you can still get airflow through there. It's like, that's pretty awesome to hear. So shout out yeah. to those types of solutions. Shout out to, uh, uh, I'm gonna mess up. I can't think of his name, I'm too freaking high. Uh, whoever his, his partner is out there uh, with the greenhouse, man, I'm sorry. I know your real name, but I'm not shouting that out on air. <laughs> I can't think of your online name, sorry. <laughs> All right, see you guys. Take it easy, man. <laughs> Have a good night. Thank you, Spartan Grown, for joining us. I know we've got about 13 minutes left, so we could actually kind of still uh, bounce around. I see the chat's actually flying by. I'm in live chat. I hope everybody else is. I want to shout out Sour Diesel Tangy, uh, Smot Poker, Cade Armstrong, uh, Weedist. I see Dr. MJ in there chatting it up. Gotta love it. Spartan Grown, CN Grows Love, and peace out to everybody. Uh, Keon Fire Genetics, Stro Groves, Peter Griffin, everybody that came and showed up for the live, we really appreciate you all. Um, I want to give Brandon an opportunity if he has any final thoughts and stuff uh, before we do our sign-outs, and I'm going to go around to everybody, give him a second. If there's anything earlier in the show that you wanted to address that you didn't get a chance to speak on, uh, maybe uh, go through that now. No, or if you have anything exciting coming up. Nothing I can think of uh, as far as things that are coming up with me. Um, I've just been making sure that I have a lot of variety and a rotating menu. Uh, so that way we can always bring new flavors. I think that's really important. Um, I have people that are running a lot of the genetics that I hunted now. Um, and, and I'm seeing th those people are having some success. So that's, that's nice. And then, you know, uh, real soon, you know, we'll have this, this farm up and running, this other farm up and running in uh, just really exciting times, you know, hopefully uh, I can just continue to stay on the same momentum that I've been on since I've been out here. And, uh, yeah, I really appreciate uh, being on the show. I appreciate all the people that come on here because, you know, I'm all about education. And when I have a chance to talk about this stuff, it just makes me a better grower. You know, it helps me retain the information the more that I talk about it. So I appreciate this two hours. Um, and uh, anyway, uh, you can find my IG at Rust Brandon. Uh, you can find my work there. You can find a link to my company, Bokashi Earthworks. Um, thanks for having me, and uh, thanks to all the listeners that come and join us every every week. Thanks for coming. We really appreciate your input, and I agree. I Just by being here, I learn a lot and um, better retain the information. So when I'm talking about it with uh, you know peers and professionals in the field, I feel like I'm better equipped to uh, you know sound like I know what I'm talking about and actually really do because you've heard it enough times and you've talked about it. And you've seen it enough times and you can uh, understand really the information much, much better the more we continue to discuss this. Dr. MJ, it looked like uh, I saw you light up there for a second. I'll give you the opportunity to go ahead next. Did I light up? <laughs> Sorry oh, about maybe that. Maybe you just bumped your mic. I know if, if you didn't uh, have anything, uh, I was going to actually go to the American one just uh, to change it up and ask if you had anything earlier that maybe you wanted to discuss that you didn't get to or if you have anything exciting coming up. Um, nothing that I missed too much, except I wanted to thank the input about the uh, potassium sulfate because, um, oh, and yeah, I mentioned why, how I got into looking at that. I was, so, you know, like advanced nutrients and some other nutrient companies and some other microbial promoting companies have done a lot of research and put a lot of money into that research. So 
you know, you could pick apart a nutrient chart and get the ratios of the components that they use. And you could, what I was doing is trying to figure out an organic input that would mimic that exact input. You know what I'm saying? And not necessarily water soluble because that's even, that's totally different. But uh, upon attempting that, I realized that um, not too many organic inputs have the numbers that could uh, reach what I was looking for without putting something else off kilter with either like too much of this or too much of that. But long story short, um, yeah. So if it's occurring in nature and we just extract it like a mining thing, that's organic now is what they're about these um, salts and stuff is what I'm understanding. And I kind of agree with that. So thanks for that input. And um, yeah, nothing too much new going on. I started a whole bunch of uh, seeds and I'm gonna <clears throat> keep my library of clones on the side and do a whole bunch of different different seeds from all the people I've got them from because they're just sitting in a drawer and that's not right. So that's about it, yeah. Are you gonna be partaking in the fucking growing shit with Eagle uh, with the jelly bean or the Agent Orange? I may, I haven't, uh, no, probably not because I haven't uh, asked for seeds yet, but if they push the uh, date back to September, perhaps I, the end of September, perhaps I'll uh, hit up Eagle, so maybe. I guess uh, that was kind of softly announced, at least on the show, I think the other night, where they said that's Subcool's birthday, September 29th, maybe the pop date, if people haven't already done it, um, that might be like in his honor, getting a bunch of people popping uh, some of that gear, so the grow along on fucking talking shit with eagle there's multiple communities doing this like i said I, I love to see everybody getting people encouraging more and more people to grow he's giving away free seeds to people so shout out to eagle he's uh gave away like 90 plus packs already for that so really cool to see the communities getting people growing know the grower i want to give you a opportunity now to uh if you had anything earlier you didn't get to jump in or uh, if you have something exciting in the future that you'd want to talk about go ahead and say that and then you can give your final sign up Right on. Yeah, no, uh, no, I don't got anything right now. I, I actually, I got some new stuff coming in and, um, oh yeah, I just want to say thank you to everybody here. Uh, I was getting, before I found this show, I was kind of getting a little stagnant. I'm kind of the go-to guy in my circle. People were always asking me stuff and I was kind of getting on my hot horse and then to be around all you ninjas, I'm like, Whoa, there's stuff out there. I learn from you guys all the time. And I respect all you guys as growers, especially putting out this content, the way you guys are doing, you didn't have that kind of stuff when I was coming up. And uh, I, I try and uh, be here as much as I can, and I try to answer everybody's questions as best as I can. And I encourage anybody out there to, to get into growing because it's not impossible. You know, anybody can do it. And uh, I have a great time with everybody. And anybody has any, any questions or anything, you want to come check out my page, you want to see what I'm doing. You have any questions about your growing, I'll be happy to answer anything for free. I'm Noah the Girl from Instagram. Thanks for having me. I'll see you guys next week. Always a pleasure, Noah. We really uh, value your input greatly. You're an incredible grower yourself, and I'm glad that you feel like uh, we're a group of ninjas, ninja growers, as you like to call us. Uh, I think it's just alluding to the fact that everybody here has got their own set of skills and uh, share them here openly and make us all better together. And I think that's a really exciting and fun part about this community. So I wanted to pass it next over to our IPM specialist, Matthew Gates. Is there anything that you didn't uh, get to jump in on earlier that you'd like to discuss a little more or uh, anything exciting coming up before your final shout out? Absolutely. Um, I'll just echo that I do appreciate this, uh, this gathering that we have every week. It's why I have very much tried not to miss it uh, every Sunday, even though I'm a very busy person, especially now. It's getting to be harvest season and people are dealing with pests and, you know, whether I'm working with them as a, as a, on a client basis or whatever, um, 
I'm always happy to help out people. People were even in the chat here asking if they could send me pictures and stuff. So I, I like to help as many people as I can. Um, to that end, in, in service to that, I have a video coming out that I mentioned earlier about insect digestion for those who have heard the phrase that healthy plants with high BRICS levels can't get pests or pathogens. It's not true at the very least, I can prove it with insects. And um, it's a video about digestion and how insects are able to overcome plant defenses and uh, what aspects of plant natural immunity actually does affect um, insect ability to eat them. And uh, yeah, so that'll come out soon. My August 2020 IPM FAQ came out uh, recently. So you can take a look at that for some really interesting uh, questions and their answers from me. And um, yeah, one more thing for the mycorrhizae. There are even examples where um, mycorrhizae can facilitate plant virus growth in certain plants. And um, I, I read a research report about that and put it out in the uh, Global Integrated Pest Management uh, video that I made on, on my YouTube channel, which is Xenthanol. So if you're interested in that, take a look there. I also have a pest primer playlist with a bunch of different pests. All right, I'm done. Very good. I, I like the uh, incoming transmission, Instagram, Sync Angel, and YouTube uh, Xenthanol for those uh, who are not paying attention very clearly to the YouTube chat or video. That is uh, Matthew's uh, links right there. So thank you again, Matthew, for joining us. I saw a few days ago you dropped that FAQ video, which uh, was full of very good information. I also look forward to the one about the uh, plant sugars because I'm going to bookmark that and have it as a handy reference for all the times that I see people making those claims because I like to share the information, um, not in like a way to upset people, but to inform them because I think if they believe their plant is immune or invincible because it has high bricks, they may be setting themselves up for uh, not being successful. And I'd rather them actually have a more broad um, perspective on the cultivation standpoint so that they don't set themselves up for failures in, in that regard. So thank you very much for making these awesome references for the community and people like myself to uh, use frequently and share. Um, I believe that we have Dr. MJ next. Hey guys, yeah, Dr. MJ Coco from CocoForCannabis.com. I um, mentioned it a couple of times already, but there's still time to sign up for the Plant Training Grow Challenge. Flip day is October 1st. We have uh, mad crazy prizes. We're giving away this like $350 grow kit in a couple of days. Um, next week's draw or next month's drawing, sorry, October 1st, we're giving away a Photon Tech X465 watt um, light, like a top of the line fixture for a four by four tent. Um, we got weekly like grow our journal of the week prizes and all that. So get in this, there's over, there's a hundred journals now at this point, um, growers that are documenting their grows in the plant training grow challenge. So um, not too late to join. Um, check out my recent videos on YouTube. Guys, you're already on YouTube. Those of you that are watching now and uh, thanks to the panel. It was a fun chat. Um, thanks to the, the chatters. Um, even those that like to, to harass. And um, I, I love everybody. Grow our love. Have a wonderful week. See you guys next week. Thanks again Later for joining on. us, Doc. I know uh, sometimes people in the chat like to have back and forth, and uh, everybody's got their opinions, and we appreciate them. And uh, I think that it makes us all better because it makes us question our own opinions and beliefs and see what the actual best information is out there. So I uh, appreciate them all for showing up and being viewers and making sure they hit that thumbs up that like button. If you're not already, make sure you subscribe to the channel. Uh, it helps support the cheap home grow. That is our buddy Shane. He's a great dude. He's the one who allows us to put on this stream every single week on YouTube. Uh, Shane, 
thank you very much for that, bud. We appreciate you very much and uh, putting this out in the podcast form for all the people who listen after the show. Shout out to you whenever and wherever you listen to the show. We appreciate your support and we hope that you continue to get better as a grower and, and save yourself money and grow the best quality cannabis that you can at home. I am at Jack Greenstock. I really appreciate everybody for coming this week on the panel and the listeners as well. Um, I look forward to next week and appreciate all the kind words that were said this week uh, about the show. I, I agree. I, I enjoy the show a lot and um, I hope I'm not too biased because I'm the host, but I look forward to it every week. And um, I'm not a religious person, but this is sort of like the church. It's just one of the things that I do most religiously, despite working uh, 70 plus hour work week sometimes. I enjoy coming and uh, spending a few hours here with all of you. So with that said, Jack Greenstock signing out. Happy growing, everyone. Grow with love.